Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi everyone, welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. I'm Sam Moores and with me today I have Ollie Marriage. Hello. Hey Sam, how you doing? Very good, very good. Welcome, welcome to the podcast. Can you tell the audience just like a, a little bit about sort of who you are, what you do? Uh, so I'm, I'm a motoring journalist but I, I think that I have the greatest job title <laughs> that anyone gets. I'm the head of car testing at Top Gear. So I, yeah, I'm responsible for the car output and stuff across Top Gear's portfolios. Yes. Okay. Let's let's sort of wind back a little bit. How did you sort of start out and get into this industry and end up where you are? Um, a long time ago, because I'm old. Um, how? So I I got into it through a route which I don't think is as recognised now as it was then, but it was the way that. Everyone got into the industry back then, which was through work experience. Um, I'd loved cars, loved writing. And it was only about when I left university that I worked out that this is something that people did for a job. Yeah. And I thought that would sound like a very good job to have. So I wrote to car magazines for work experience and got taken on by Haymarket initially, working on, I was doing work experience on what car magazine okay. initially. Um which was just, yeah, all I, all I wanted to do. But in that office, that big open plan office they had in Twickenham, they were based, Teddington, um, were all these people whose words I'd written, or read for, for years and years. So I was just, it was just a fascinating environment to be in. And what, what, were you studying something related to that at all before? Or no, did a no. Left? I think, I, think I, I was what my, my parents would probably term a concern to them <laughs> because I'd done geography and politics at university and then sloped off and worked abroad for um, a year or two 
um, because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah. And it was only just, it was one night I was in a bar with some mates um, talking about what jobs we were going to get when we went back to the UK because I'd spent summers putting up marquees and generally dossing around. Yeah. Um, and it was one of those nights where you suddenly go, click, something hit me and I thought, right, that's what I want to do. So when I got back, I'd been working in the French Alps for a couple of years. Um, nice. Went back and wrote letters, as you did back then, rather than yeah. emails. <laughs> Were you skiing? Yes. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I spent a couple of seasons in the Alps of various sorts and New Zealand and stuff. I was an instructor for a bit. Um, oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that, that was me. And to be fair, um, I, my colleagues used to take the mick out of me because pretty much any t- any any year's annual holiday is usually wiped out by the end of March. <laughs> so I've been <laughs> off to the mountains again. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. you're applying... And, and did the... Were you into sort of writing at that point in time? Um, I don't think I realised it, but yes, I was. I'd, I'd, I'd written for sort of school and university magazines and things and quite enjoyed that. And I did sort of have a a taste a small taste of motoring journalism when I was at university because I was involved in the university um magazine mm. um and as part of that I wanted to, to to do stuff with cars and so I had been to car dealerships and tried to borrow cars and and write about them for the university magazine but funnily enough university students aren't really interested in buying new say, cars from dealerships how did that pan out <laughs> It worked once or twice, but mainly it was. I think we. I can't remember how we did it, but we. It, I mean, even then, it hadn't really occurred to me that to make this l- jump from dicking about on a student yeah, title yeah, yeah, to yeah. um to actually doing it as a proper job. Yeah, and then so you ended up at what car? Mm. And work experience what car? Yeah, and back then, when when sort of was this? This was mid late nineties, and, and so you... twenty five years ago. Did they immediately go, yeah, you can jump in a, a Lambo and review <laughs> that? <laughs> no, absolutely not. So um, it's uh, I'd so what 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 I was doing initially, it wasn't even I wasn't even on what car I was on. They did something called the book, which was a used car price guide, which was like a just a data yeah. thing like the cat black book or whatever. Um, and I was doing literally filling data into spreadsheets. It was tedious as anything but i was in the right room while people were talking cars and i just thought this is amazing everyone around me is is into this into the same sort of things that i'm into so the atmosphere for me was brilliant um so getting you know just having that exposure and that immersion in that environment was what really excited me yeah, 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 yeah. And presumably collecting loads of random data. As you're putting it in, you're like, oh, yeah. yes, the so-and-so weighs 1,427 kilos. <laughs> well, no, if you're, I am I am, and have been a car data geek for my entire life. If you speak yeah. to most of my friends, they will still remind you of various top Trump's debacles where I've been able to recite the entire packs <laughs> off, off the top of my head. Is that, is that <laughs> something that still sticks today? I used to be like that, yeah, and I'm does. much so less so now. Uh, no, yeah, no, no, within the office now, 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 no, I'm not. I, I've probably moved on and got over it slightly. But you get, um, I, I still feel torn in that way between the data of the cars and the and the sort of more heart driven excitement mm. of them. 
Yeah, and then because I, I find if I'm driving a car, and I don't know whether you feel like this, I look at all the data beforehand. Okay, not like all the data, but as in the basic stuff. And I make a sort of assumption of what it's going to be like. And yeah, yeah, often it sort of aligns. <laughs> Tallies. You know. Um, yeah, yeah. Do, do you find that? Like? I, I think I do, but mainly because I've been doing this for so long now. You you start yeah. working out, okay, well, if that car manufacturer's done that product, what platform it's been based on, who's it? So you you know where things are coming from and how things are going because of the realities of them running a car company in the modern era for how long, yeah, for where everything's going to fit yeah. in and how they've done it for the cost and all the rest of it. Can you think of so, any sort of outliers in that something you've got in and you've gone, I think it's going to be like this and it's like completely different or different. Um, there, I mean, there must have been surprises over the years, but I'm terrible at recounting things or memorizing <laughs> things off the top of my head. Um, I think, well, there was the, there was the lovely story with the, um, with the, um, when I think the, the rumor was that Volkswagen heard that Renault was doing a Clio three liter car. And they thought that referred to three litres per hundred kilometres. Um, so they built, they rushed out this Lupo three litre that could do, I think, whatever the calculation was, 90 miles to the yeah. gallon. And of course, it wasn't a three litre to the hundred kilometres car. It was the mid-engine Clio V6. And I think <laughs> things, things like that always come as like, you what? Yeah. How, what on earth made you think that was a good idea? Or, you know... Do, but um, they, those are the fascinating cars, aren't they? they, they um, that the quirky, seem to have come out ones. from a little of a scramble somewhere, where someone's gone. Well, we could we could try this, um, and then they end up, yeah, being the ones we all remember, probably. Yeah, massively. That was a car I got to drive one for the first time a couple of years ago, and oh, I remember Gen I think one I, or Gen two. I don't know. I'm not sure actually. No. Big wide body thing. Yeah, yeah, they did a gen. The Gen One had the sort of round headlights and was sort of more bulbous. The Gen Two, they were sort of was sort of two thousand and five onwards, two thousand four, two thousand and five onwards, um, and was a was actually a much much better car than the original one. Yeah, I, I, just, I think that was one of those ones that I wasn't massively like nerdy on cars when I was younger, and I remember seeing one of those like just at an event and be like, what, yeah. what on earth is that? So it's quite yeah. a funny one to sort of look back. So you did some work experience at, at what car? And then mm. how did you move on from there? Um, basically, um, Steve Cropley, who is a, a name that will be familiar to everyone, came across the office one day and said, we'd said they'd heard, heard good things about me and would I be interested in a job? Um, and I lit up to that point, I'd spent, I think this was two months in and I'd literally just been data inputting yeah. and occasionally helping out on a photo shoot or something, um, which had, which had been enough to convince me this is all I wanted to do really. Um, and then when Steve came across the office and said, they'd heard good things and would I be interested? I was like, absolutely. Um, and then he did something that I thought was, well, this is, this isn't road testing. I'm not quite sure about this, which was, I, my, I think when I first started out on autocar, I was a, I, it was editorial assistant is the job title. It sort of means dog's body, but gets yeah. that it's a very important role to do though, because you do everything you get involved in everything. And so for the first few months, I think I was just subbing. I was subbing mm. other people's <laughs> copy to flow it into the magazine, doing headlines, doing yeah. this sort of thing, all with someone sitting over my shoulder watching. But you 
you get immersed in things very quickly. And it was that, and then the combination of being able to go out on more photo shoots and drives and things that just, it just, you, you sort of spin up into getting a bit, a bit more experience as you go along. Yeah. And back then with the driving, like, was there almost, a, was there a sort of education program as such as in like trying to get people to be better drivers slash able to do more yes, stuff? Yes, there was. Um, but I, so what I, yeah, I think once I was on staff, if we got, we got sent on various driving courses to do bits, but I, I still maintain that there's, I think all of us who came through the sort of car magazine channels mm. back in the, at that time were, lucky i don't think we're especially we're especially talented or anything we were just lucky that we would go down to test tracks like um long cross down at chobham yeah or millbrook or Mara, and there was much less regulation about what you could and couldn't do so you could just go out and play and you would be said right go off onto the chobham slip pad and just see what cars do if you go flat on the throttle if you lift off yeah. what happens to the car balance what happens and so we were very, very fortunate to have that that exposure to things because you were just dicking around, just went out there to yeah. mess around. And it was just, oh, this is amazing. So <laughs> this is a day at work. I used to go home and tell my flatmate, you'll never guess what I've done today. I've been doing this and this. And it's... So even though, yeah, it was, yeah, it was very, that, that sort of uh, ability to have that time and exposure to it is has changed and it's i think it's gone for good i can't see that time coming back because you know back then we only had to write for a magazine with that's 400 words for a week and now when i send guys off on launches and things i'm expecting them to come back with a web story a gallery a first drive for the magazine social content all sorts of things plus news stories and everything else so yeah that those the 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 good old days i suppose we'd refer to them as yeah. uh, showing our age <laughs> showing my age at least um are probably not coming back in that regard it is quite insane the difference in sort of the level of output required like i've, I've been on a few mm. sort of press things recently and i've been shooting like everything like i've been making some sort of video shooting photos um this time i recorded a podcast like doing just like doing all the stuff and then a couple yeah. of people there were writing articles and like they're just wandering around just in like whatever <laughs> t-shirt and shorts with like a phone and they're like oh, i'll take a couple of pictures yeah. for instagram or whatever and yeah. i'm there like with all my gear wandering around yeah it, it, i think that it's a slight I, insight into the sort of probably mm. what it was more like back then um, yeah, yeah, I think it is, and also the thing I I I always think is quite interesting is if you look at the difference between so we we all we all deal deal in words and pictures on some whether the yeah. words are moving or they're still whatever the difference difference is that it tends to used to be that the journalist's job didn't necessarily didn't even start until you'd finished that day's work so yeah. the photographer would have to come walk go home from that shoot with all the assets he needed but the journalist as long as he'd driven the car, didn't have to do, basically didn't have to do much work on the shoot. Yeah. Their job started when they sat down at a yeah. word processor the next day and wrote about it. So as long as they had good, clear ideas of what they'd been up to and what they thought the car or whatever it was, 
the, you know, that that schedule has changed now. So for anyone doing presenting or for anything else, you basically need a script in advance. You need to know exactly what you're going to do. And then you have to sort of compartmentalize the day for for what yeah. you're going to do when. So that's been a massive transformation, I think, for everyone. Yeah. And have you found that tricky? I, I find it quite tricky if I have a certain if it gets to a certain load of different things. Eventually, my mind just explodes, and I can't like trying to do yeah. a different social media platform in a different, and then record it all like in with it one another. Um, yeah, do you find it, it, it difficult? Is, it, it is. It is. I think it's borderline impossible. <laughs> yeah, you because there's so much you're trying to think about, and you've got so many people coming to you for different things, saying, "Right, we'll need this for that, and we'll need that for this," and you, you just it's a it's a real struggle to keep up. Yeah. So um, you do your best, don't you? Take, take yeah. time, don't you? And then you ask for more time because that's the one thing <laughs> that's the one give that you can probably try and get from somewhere is get more time for something. And, and if you guys are doing a review and, and you do a mix of you know presenting to camera and driving and then writing and whatever, do you get when do you sort of start planning? How does that process start? Do you start planning the video and everything? before you've you know even got the car or is it some stuff blends when you've got the car do you get the car for like four days drive it and then film or is it does it change a lot no no so um uh, the way it tends to work for us i mean we're very lucky and the top gear's got a lot of clout Mm. so we can usually if we can if we can we'll try and do something separate to what everybody else is doing so if the manufacturer's having a launch of a car we will try and get different access to it. We can do it a few days later as long as we're still within embargo, if we're being held to sort of a, everyone's being held to a certain certain embargo. But we will try and do it differently, separately. So we come out with a different story to everybody else, hopefully a more expansive, interesting story, because I think you're you're you serve everyone better. You serve your audience better, you serve the the manufacturer better because you've got a more diversity in what they're what you're being told well they hope it depends on what we think of the car but no in essence we only get that one access point it's very rare for someone to say look we want to send you this car for a day to go and drive it and then four days later we want to film it no because no one's got that time you've you've got that that one time one one piece of exposure has got to do you for every for everything so you spend like we do, like you said, you're spending a lot of time going through the data of it to try and work out what it's going to be like, where it fits into the market, what its rivals are, and you're doing as much preparation as you can in advance. Which most of it is going into the script for the film you're yeah. going to make while you're there, because we've learned, it's only certainly I've learned to my cost. If you turn up on a on a video shoot without a script. The day's going to go badly from the word go. Yeah. Um, so you need to have that at least a rough idea, and to have spoken to both the photographer and the videographer in advance, so that you all know when you when you get there the next morning, you're going to hit the ground running. Yeah. And you can it'll it'll wander on. It'll go hopefully smoothly from there. But the bigger the shoot and the more cars are involved, the more compl- complex it gets until it gets until yes heads start exploding <laughs> so um but yes you do and then yeah it's that breakdown of the day and how what you want to do and the unfortunate thing is the the the, the often the last thing that you actually gets put on the list is drive the car and think about it 
Yes. Because you're right, into pieces to camera. I haven't driven the car yet. How can yeah. I be talking like, you're about You're driving it, it now. I don't know don't what I'm <laughs> going to say. Yeah. So it often does. And But uh, interestingly, I often think a lot of the best opinion on the car comes when you are completely fresh to it, when you haven't driven it, when you're just getting into it and you, your expectations are telling you how you thought it was going to be. Yeah. And then you get into it and the reality is slightly different and you go, ah, oh, that's what makes this interesting. As long as you can clearly communicate that, um, I think you, yeah, you're in the, heading in the right direction. Yeah. And it must be really difficult because if you, when you say you're, you know, you're sort of scripting what you're going to do, say, etc. Do you sort of kind of try and like bullet point and go, I'm going to talk about vaguely this and then we'll see how it, it actually is. Or do yeah. you go, do you literally write it and then almost learn it? Um, we try and build up a framework for what the, I think it probably comes from a, from a magazine feature background, but you try and build up a, a, a general idea of what the film is going to be and what the high points are going to be. And then what you'll, what you think you'll need to be talking about and then put that into some sort of structure, which might involve, you know, a, a walk around of the car first, then a drive of it, and then you'll then you'll work out where some voiceover might fit yeah. in here or there, and so you're building a building a framework for it, um, which is pretty much how we you know it's words and pictures again. It's and yeah. it's the same for a magazine story. It's all words and pictures, and you're working out what's what's important, what's not important, what can you put in, leave out, shift around. Um, so you yeah, it's sort of it's. A, it's an organic process and I just still don't think for scripting that I don't feel remotely as comfortable doing that as I do writing features yeah. and drives and everything, which you can, which I can yeah, do with my hands tied behind my back. Yeah. It's interesting that the, there's something, I mean, sort of brutal and has to be done about someone pressing record. And if you're speaking, you've got to say something that's ticks all the boxes of all the stuff you want to deliver but be interesting and, you know, do all those sorts of things. I think your point about when you first get in a car and you've got some sort of preconceptions of what it's going to be like and then reporting on that, I think that particularly, that translates so well to the audience because most people probably have a similar thought about what a car is going to be like. Yeah. So actually, if you address that, what people are going in their heads, they're like, oh, okay it's not like this or it is like this or I think that mm. that definitely sort of relates quite well. Yeah, I think it does. And, and also I think on the whole, the audience nowadays, although they've got, they, they can be, there's so much information out there for, for them. I think on the whole, they're much better informed than they were 20 years ago. I think 20 years ago, the magazines and the early websites were the, they were the Im- complete arbiters of, information yeah. provision they whereas now i think there's so much comes out in drips and drabs that people pick that up and if they're interested in something they've already got really good they tend to have good knowledge yeah. about it already already um so yeah i think we we sort of yeah you don't it, I, th- I feel like we're on our we have to be we're kept on our toes more now than we were 15 20 years ago yeah if you say you know, the camber's been changed on the new RS by half a degree to whatever, someone will be like, no, it's not. It's minus yeah, 0.25. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The pr- <laughs> problem is, with a lot of this, is that 
there's you if you speak to two different engineers on a project <laughs> yeah, yeah. you will often get called two very slightly different things or no no it was done that for this reason or it was done for that reason yeah. now you, so you basically have to go back to the data sheet that is provided to you and that yeah. is your final say i mean you get massive com, um, confusion over things like the weights of the cars and the power of the cars because all european in fact pretty much all global manufacturers now quote ps rather than bhp yeah which there's a conversion factor of 0.98632 <laughs> that converts one to the other and a lot of car manufacturers quote the eu weight for a car rather than the din weight the din weight is the weight with fluids the eu weight adds 75 kilos for a bloke and yeah. some luggage so uh, for a yeah passenger and luggage so you you you're trying to how you You've got how you sort of have to steer around these little facets and details is a, oh, it's just a bit of a pain. But, yeah, um, it is. I, I saw it came across a sort of interesting one. I don't want to necessarily slate a certain manufacturer, but it was it, it, it wasn't the manufacturer's fault. The it was when the new RS3 came out, and there was a lot of chat about how much power it could send to the rear. And if you read the the, this is when I think having a I have a slight engineering background and, or, you know, studied it and I can read through what someone's saying. And if you have a bit more of knowledge about cars, when they say, okay, it's this type of four wheel drive system and it can send up to a hundred percent of the available power to, to one, one wheel, to either, rear. One, either yeah. rear wheel, but actually mm. the max it can send is 50% of the total. 50%, yeah. Um, mm. But that confused a lot of, people driving the car and then when they asked that who was it It was matt Farr, i think he asked one of the people on the launch what it could do and they told him it could put all the power to the rear and then you're like yeah. how, how are you meant to unpick that if you don't understand yeah. exactly how the car works that's really yeah, yeah. difficult to unpick it is yeah and yeah as you say you can sometimes get conflicting advice and then someone in the comments somewhere will shout at you yeah. So, um, <laughs> and you just got to go well this is you know this is, this is what i got told mm, and this is yeah. to the best of my knowledge so yeah right you did work experience at what car and then you mm. moved was it into what car I, so no I, I was never on staff at what car but what car and autocar were in the same office okay, they were just two sets yeah. of debt they were a set of desks apart from each other um and then so i worked for then moved into what car um where so doing doing a bit of editorial assistance so a bit of everything bit of subbing and then moved into the road test department which was just like yeah. every christmas had come at once <laughs> um a guy called steve sutcliffe was my boss who's still yeah. still around um and so and we had a really really strong team it was a really it was a good it was a good place to work um yeah, it was just, you know, I was in my early 20s and just thought this was about the best thing ever. But no, you're not, even back then, you weren't straight into Ferraris and Porsches. There was still an, <laughs> you know, there was an insurance age of, yeah. I think it was 25 that um, that really mattered. Um, so you you had to get to age 25 before you could drive the quick stuff. I think now it's 27, 30, 35 for some yeah. stuff, I think. Um so it's yeah, it's a little bit more. It was a bit, it was a bit more free and easy. But even back then, you know, you were off to Millbrook to do all the the numbers on the cars, the acceleration tests, and all the rest of it, which was just super super exciting. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean that was yeah. just like absolute dream stuff at that point in time. In when oh, you're it was completely and utterly writing things and whatever, was there a real atmosphere in the office of people sort of helping and critiquing and going? You yes, get yeah, there really was. Um, and I think that's the most valuable thing is that you only learn. So I used to be, I mean, showing your work to someone, it's like being back at school and having a teacher, showing mm. your work to someone when you when you're actually really care about your subject, because you never did about the a, the estuary levels of the um, yeah. English essay you had to do from D.H. Lawrence or something. <laughs> but when you actually had to, you know, you really care about this first drive review and you put it down in front in front of the chief sub-editor or the, your head of department and it comes back covered in red ink is right. Okay. So, and it's, yeah, you're torn between the, Oh my God, I'm terrible. I should be quitting this yeah. and going and getting, doing something else. And the, well, I want to learn and what, where, how, where, where could I be doing this a lot better than I, than I have already. Um, so it was a very open atmosphere and I, it has been every, uh, every, everywhere I've worked. It's had mm. this, there, there is always this, encouragement of the younger people coming through to try and help them find their feet and and yeah and improve because that's what you that's yeah. what you want to do really yeah i think one thing i sort of picked up from people that write about it is a lot of i think a lot of people might, might look at the like what you do now and go i want to do that because i want to drive the cars mm. and it's, it's been yeah. sort of highlighted to me a few times like yes you get to drive cars yeah. But you've got to love writing <laughs> and yeah. now you've got to sort of enjoy at least being on camera a little bit to some extent or at least yeah. be able to sort of get away with it mm. so no com- completely and utterly you absolutely have to enjoy the writing because that or the writing or the thinking or what or the presenting or whatever aspects because it has diversified so much and we're all i mean i'm there just trying to paddling frantically to try and keep <laughs> up and uh, you have you have to diversify um but for yeah, you have to enjoy the the side of it that isn't just the driving the car, because the driving the car is it's the means to an end. What you are trying to do is then communicate that to your audience, whether that audience is reading it, viewing it, listening to it, whatever it is. So that that process you have to go through of sitting down and doing the the harder graft of writing about it or structuring it, whatever is is absolutely vital to the process yeah and 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 you've got to enjoy that part because that is the main mm. the main yeah, part yeah. yeah with um I, I sort of noticed looking at different magazines and so you you've worked in a few different ones is there like a different sort of style that each magazine sort of embodies a bit and presumably you have yeah. some latitude in the middle how is how have you mm. found that at, at different places I think well, I tell you, I think the only mainstream car magazine I haven't worked for is Car, which is ironically the magazine I grew up reading more than any other. Yeah. Um, but um, yes, so if you, I mean, you, you've got to look at the magazine in question. So each magazine will take each car they they're doing and and look at it from their standpoint, which means that what uh, the the how auto car will approach a car is very different to how what car will approach it is very different to how Top Gear would approach it. Yeah. Because, you know, they they each have different priorities about what they consider important. So whereas Top Top Gear considers the sort of overall excitement of the car paramount, Mm. what car is going to, is going to be the value and the practicality that counts. And that means that therefore 
so I'm always surprised when people say, "Oh, how car? How come that car got a nine from Top Gear, but only yeah, a yeah. seven or something from what what car?" Well, look at the audience. Look at what they're trying to communicate and who the who the who the end end reader end user of it is. Um, of course, they're going to have you're going to have different opinions and put different balances on things. So you've just got to decide what title or what outlet you know reflects your reflects you best and then go I'd with never that. thought about that but that that absolutely rings true your auto car top car evo whatever they mm. all they all have a different sort of agenda spin on it and they're yeah. going to rate it according to how they rank exactly things. and then and you break it down further you know we'd i think for top gear it's the more visceral excitement of a car mm. that is, is 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 paramount but for evo i think it's the sort of the in the the chassis dynamics and the real <laughs> detail of it um that is 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 paramount so you've got yeah you you everyone will will get different things from different places yeah when i was looking at um i, I read top gear magazine occasionally and I, I hadn't read it i hadn't really read it for until maybe a, a year ago or something and the style of article is much more jovial, fun, like not so serious. It's do, does that then translate into what you get to do and as a magazine? Because it, it it sort of looks like, and it might not be the case. Top Gear is having a lot of fun making Top Gear. Yeah, I mean, and see, I think that is the most important thing, and it's because I've been at Top Gear now for eleven years. Mm. And for me, it is the most important thing because I think you will you will deliver better content. You'll have a better time if it looks to the audience like you're having fun doing it. Um, and I think I think some people can get a bit chin scratchy and they will sort of stand around and go, "Hmm, this is <laughs> we're making very important decisions here." But basically, behind you is parked a Ferrari, a Porsche, and a Lamborghini or something, and you're just going, "I'm having a brilliant time." <laughs> this is. And then you tell, you're telling people about the brilliant time you're having, um, which I think is is it, it swings them roundabouts because you also want. I mean, within the BBC's remit, if you look, if you get, draw it back to that of inform, educate, and entertain, yeah. we need to inform and educate as well as entertain, and that has to. Yeah, you have to pay homage to that at every step of the way. What what's it required to get a sort of does Top Gear have a bigger budget than other magazines? Um, whew, that's a good sure. question. Um, yes, I suspect we do, um, but it's not it's not night and day. Um, so this, yeah, so we we're, we're trying to, um, yeah, we do. You try and use the use the money you've got in the best way you can, and you know, motoring media does not have particularly big budgets now. At it, just it it doesn't. It, I think since with magazine sales declining and magazine adverts having declined and a lot of money's gone out of the businesses that, that way, it hasn't fully been recouped through online advertising. And we all know that social media and YouTube is basically just a promotional tool. Yeah. You're not earning. I mean, not making YouTube does pay, but you've got to have, you've got to have a good level of content and a good level of returns in order to get, any money out of it and the investment you have to put in to make a youtube film i think this is probably what a lot of people don't realize it's fine if it's just you holding a hand a handy cam pointing at your face yeah but if you want 
uh, you know, if you're paying for a crew of two or something to come along for the day, plus the editing time, plus the location fees and everything else, you've got a lot of investment in that straight away. And, you know, you're not going to get that back until you hit like 5 million views on, on yeah. YouTube. And there's very, very little that does. So most places are, it's a, it's a bit of a loss leader, social media and YouTube. Yeah. And you see, you see the people that, well, and this is where it makes perfect sense for someone like Tim Shmi. Like he keeps it simple and I'm always the one, I'm always telling him, I'm like, yeah, but come on, like just, just up the production a little piece. Like, no, it makes no sense. The audience for what I do does not care. In fact, they mm. almost appreciate, they do appreciate yep. the slightly rough and ready side of yep. it. Um, but then a huge part of it, views do, do bring in some money, but a huge part of it is working with brands and whatnot. Mm. But I presume for someone like BBC, that's actually re- really difficult you can't just be having a promoted video all the time. It's got to go. No, it's got to work in the grand mm. picture. And it, it has, it has. And we, you need it to, it's got to, if you think about, you know, the, the, the TV show production style, which is, you know, the quality is so, yeah. so high. We want um, the content that we're producing on the BBC studio side for Top Gear to, to approach that if we can. And it's important then that you do, you know, you invest in it to, to get it to that because they, you know, but I think if equally the, the models that you, you want to be known for a style and a yeah. familiarity because that's what will bring people back. If people like what you're doing. It, you don't feel the need to change it just because, Oh, I've got a bit more money now. Yeah. I should, you know, I should get people to someone to point the camera at me rather than holding it myself. Um, they like what you're doing for, for a reason. So yeah, I think each, each, brand needs to have a presentation style and a, a, a that works for them really but it's it seems to be at the moment like you're saying it's all of the i would say all of the major magazines and now we've got various networks that have started to cast up brands and for youtube and whatnot they last about a year maybe two and then they're gone because they're, they're gone Return on investment, which was a considerable investment, I imagine, mm-hmm. um, just doesn't work, which yeah. I love watching those style of videos because mm. yes. like, I, I love that level of production and, and whatnot. And I enjoy other yeah. content as well. But it seems like, you know, all of them burn brightly for a short period of time and then, yeah. <laughs> and then I, gone. I think, I think a, a, lot of, a lot of what it is is they all come into the industry with a similar mindset, which is like, Car companies are huge and have money. Yeah. Therefore, we can piggyback that, and they're and they're they're happy to fly us to a racetrack mm. in southern southern Europe somewhere to go and film this. So, and we 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 do exactly the same. You know, the 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 if someone's paying for your flights for you and a videographer and a photographer to fly somewhere to do it, you're thinking right. Well, that is the location fees done. That is the travel cost done. Yeah we can we can now get on top of on top of this so it, it's a tempting th- look in because it looks quite glamorous from the outside yeah. looking in and you've got you know exciting cars and you're getting given access to them um and but actually still converting that into a profit out the backside yeah. so to speak is is quite difficult it's it's not you know you you there is so much exciting car content so easily delivered whether it's yeah. from influencers whether it's from brands themselves whether it's from 
supercar owners clubs or whatever it is there's a lot of content out there of you know, people filming cars and coffee meets and things yeah. like that um so you're always trying to sort of deliver i mean it always for for me for us at top gear it always comes back to the story you need to tell a story with that yeah. it's no good just going along and going oh look here i am watching this drive past or that drive past we 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 need to be bigger than that. We have to look at it and go right. No, we we want to use that car to tell a story. Yeah, it's that that nugget there. It's got to be a story. That is the only thing that keeps people coming back and engaged. Because, like you said, there's like a bazillion videos of nowadays someone going to, especially on a launch. There's like far, yeah. fifty people have gone to the same event. They've all got very similar yeah. footage like they're all in the same cars the same weather so like you've got to pr- pr- provide something that is interesting and that is not interesting and different uh, no. and that's why we do and it uh, we do ask to do things differently we do ask go to do it separately because it works for us and it tends to work for from from all aspects actually if you don't if you either have full exclusivity of something or you've got a different idea and it's been supported back. So we spend, I spend an awful lot of my time trying to get access to cars to do things with. And I know we'll all be held to the same embargo because that's how a lot, nearly yeah. all car launches and events work these days is you are held to an embargo of between two or three <laughs> days and, uh, you know, sometimes months. Yeah. But um, you want to get access to that car and persuade the manufacturer to, that you should do something different with it and uh, uh, to give you an example of that back early back in may this year we the lamborghini would say were al- allowed a few media to drive the kuntash the recreated yeah. kuntash um and they brought it to the uk and a few people drove it in the uk and did some stories here but i'd pitched to them from a while back that i wanted to take it to the stelvio pass while the pass was closed and to drive it up and down the Stelvio Pass, and have so I had the Stelvio Pass to myself for two days. And the reason that came about goes back a decade to when, in 2011, just after I joined Top Gear, we shot our car of the year, performance car of the year, on the Stelvio Pass. And one of the guys who really helped make that happen was a guy called Stefan Gander, who was the uh, marketing director for the Sud Tyrol Tourist Board in Austria. But we got on really well together. And over the years, he's helped me do a couple of other stories in the Alps or given me right contacts and things. And I'd said to him, look, what I really want to do, because I know when you open a mountain pass, it doesn't just open overnight, ta-da, with all the snow's gone and we're ready. um, It takes months. You know, they start the snow clearing process on the Stelvio in March, and it takes them until June to to get the pass open because yeah. they have to clear all the snow off, then they have to do the road repairs, the barrier checks, all this stuff, clear all the snow, clear off the, the rocks and stuff off the hillsides. So it takes months. So he'd very kindly on my behalf spoken to the um, roads department in that area and got got them excited. And this is where the Top Gear name is brilliantly useful because it yeah. opens doors. And so they'd said, right, okay, we've got some road repairs on these days that we're going to be doing lower down. But above that, the road is clear and empty and you can have it. So we, yeah, we had the entire Stelvio Pass to ourselves for awesome. two days um, with with the Lamborghini Countach um, to to do that. And it was the cover story for the magazine and it, we did a big YouTube film with it. And 
lots of social content all up on up and up and around so, and it was and it was brilliant so getting the opportunity to do things like that and to sort of conf- you you tie everything together we've got the the brand and can give you the exposure you've got the car we want to do something with and this location yeah is where we want to do it and how we want to make it all happen and you sort of if you've got that sort of trinity if you like that little triangle of power then you can um do you think glue everything help to help to it helps to glue everything together here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs coming off their parents plan or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 53124 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. When you're like a story like that, and you've got all these factors come in and you've got this vision and it's coming together and you're in this place on this cool road and you're the only person there with this cool car do you then from a just a purely reviewing the car let's just say the review that's not necessarily the story but your review of the car does that get warped because you're like well this is mega no No, it um, I to be fair, I stood at the top of the Stelvio pass with that car next to me and I said and did the 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 pinch myself I do whenever I have events like this is imagine you was you were 12 and yeah. you realized that this was going to be your job. How cool would that be? Because I think that's it's it's so exciting to do it. But no, I can completely separate the time I'm having with the with the car and doing that story from the car itself because actually I've said some pretty unkind things about the Vintage yeah. because I don't think it's a particularly great piece of design um I think it's just Lamborghini working out how they yes. can make an awful lot of money 200 million quid out of selling 100 of them um to people and it's a little bit it's a little bit cynical um so I don't yeah so no I don't I have no problem in separating yeah, yeah, yeah. the what I'm doing from the car I'm driving And uh, but I often think that the it doesn't it doesn't really matter because I think for the for the manufacturer they're excited to have that car doing that story and even if yeah. the 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 story comes out of it maybe slightly negatively or your opinion on the car comes out of it slightly negatively you've still got a really powerful piece of communication there. Yeah, and people yeah. are reading it, watching it doing it and i imagine <laughs> when you start getting to the switchbacks of the stealth of your fast you're like ah the turning radius of this car is not particularly great and yeah uh... <laughs> it definitely i was very glad it had the nose lift so you come charging up to the hairpins and you have to go through a full sequence of making sure because the nose lift took ages so you need to sort of do the countdown right so the nose would come up and then you could turn around the corner So it was um and then it, you know you accelerate out first gear and it, I think it was 25 miles now the nose lift goes back down so then you've got to get back on it so it it's no the 
the whole theme of that story was that this is possibly the least suited yeah. car to the Stelvio party. You imagine they're going to be this great partnership, but actually they both have constraint. They both put constraints on each other. Um, so, so it's probably the worst place to test it, but it didn't matter because as a partnership of that, it allowed us to say some quite interesting things about, about the car and about the place and yeah. all, all, all that sort of thing. Yeah, and yeah, look yeah. into it in, in a bit more detail, which is great. But for, I, for me, it's always, it, it's it's rarely the car I get excited about. And I don't think that's just because of um, being a cynical hack who's been doing this for a very long time. I think it's that um, places and um, cultures and things are inherently more interesting than the car. Yes. And put, but, but putting a car into that situ- situation is what makes it, it what makes it relevant to us and gives us you know gives us the 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 fantastic stories we can do yeah one of my favorite sort of types of photograph at the moment if i'm going to go shoot something is epic place epic time of day epic landscape shot with a tiny car in it that's like the right car for that location place and time that's yeah. like that's my yeah, favorite yeah. now because it just to me sums up all of the mm. stuff around a nice tightly cropped car in a frame yeah, yeah. does pretty much nothing for me because I can read the spec sheet and see some photos. Yeah, exactly. So no, I completely agree. So from and I people say to me, "Oh, what's the you know best thing you've ever done, or what greatest things that you do?" And they expect me to say it was doing you know driving well some of the really amazing stuff I've got to drive, but it rarely is because you're usually when you do that very constrained yeah. on things you've got five laps in whatever it is, or you've got a, an hour with this or whatever. And actually some of my favorite things have been the much more expansive stuff. Like um, about six years ago, Toyota launched the Hilux in Namibia, um, which they, and they, they had this very organized plan of how they were going to do it, where they were going to drive. And I, I looked at it and went, that's, that's not what I want, to, I want to do if I'm going to Namibia. So I managed to persuade Toyota to give us a Hilux separately to everybody else. And we did this thing of, of looking, because the Hilux is, the reputation it has is for bulletproof reliability. Yeah. So we said, well, how about, so it is the ship of the desert. It's, it's like the equivalent of, it's the automotive equivalent of a camel. It's the ship of the desert. Yeah. And if you look within Namibia, there are ships in the desert. So we did this story <laughs> of driving the ship of the desert to drive to meet the ship in the desert, because there are there's these uh, the, the, there's this ship called the Edward Bolan, which shipwrecked on the Skeleton Coast a hun- over a hundred years ago. But as the t- as all the sands and things have moved, it is now half in a de- mile <laughs> inland. So and it's a it's a whacking great four hundred foot freighter nice. in the middle of in the middle of a desert. So we did this story driving down to that and spent two nights in the desert. And it was just absolutely epic. And in terms of having the right car in the right place, doing the right thing, it was it was amazing. And I still cite that as a because you're always looking for an idea to be clean, easily communicable. So people can open up the, the magazine or yeah. click on a link in a bio or look at a YouTube um, thumbnail and go, yes, that's what that's what I want to get out of this. Yeah, um, totally. So, yeah. With um, all of these pulling the right car to the right place at the right time, um, I don't, are you sort of responsible for the car of the year or involved in yes. the, putting the stuff together? For, yeah. So for speed, speed week performance car of the year, that's my baby. Yeah. Yeah. 
Is that a as much of a headache as I feel like it probably is? <laughs> yes. No, more. More. <laughs> so every single year, um, every single year, I say to everyone the same things, which is that we will start early, which we always do. We start trying to gather the cars in February or March to shoot it in September. And everything will look rosy as you like right up until about August. And then in August, you'll start to get cars dropping out. You'll start to get things yeah. will start to slip because they always, always do. Um, and it, it was true. We've just this month's magazine's just been is out right now in the in the shops or well, depending on where this is going out. Yeah. But it's 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 the issue that's on sale now. It's with all sorts of stuff going on to YouTube and on the topgear.com website at the moment. Um, it's a really strong issue because we went somewhere we hadn't been before, went to the Czech Republic to do it. We took fewer cars because of the complexities, but also because we had so many drop out. Right. Because you, you, yeah, you, tr- the, 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 the absolute rule of thumb, rule, number one rule is you need good cars. So you, the idea is yeah. the best cars of that year the best sports and performance cars of that year all gathered together. And every year there are one or two key ones that you can't get the dates to line up or there's only one in Europe or it's been crashed last week or whatever happens. It it all goes on. But this year we were in the unusual situation where we had, well, at, at least five that didn't make it. And it, for me, that was a bit a heart rending really in that we had, the McLaren Artura, which we'd been told, which we'd already driven back in June. Yeah. We were told we couldn't have one of those. Same with the Lotus Amira, which we'd driven back in May or June. We'd told that was a production car, and it clearly hadn't been a production car when we'd driven it. And they'd, So those are companies that have had big issues and sort of fairly well-documented issues yeah. of trying to get those cars into production. Um, then, the, then cars from um, gi- com- giant companies that you'd assume would have no issues with mm. developmental problems. So we missed out on a Merck SL63. Right, Which yeah. means it wasn't a key car, but that's Mercedes having launched that car nine or ten months earlier, still being unable to get one for, for Top Gear Speed yeah. Week. And same with the Toyota GR86. Again, that is a an absolute heartland car for us. And they were unable to get it because of Toyota Gazoo Racing having wanting to make some final adjustment for anyone drove, which sounded like a little bit of a yeah. obfuscation cheat round the side. Who knows what's going on there? And then the last one, which was just a which was a, a shame because the North, well, it's going to be on the next series of the TV show, um, and it because it makes the most insane noise ever is the Pagani Huayra R, ah, yes. which I drove back in June July. And I just thought, no, for the noise alone, we need to have that at Speed Week because it'll just be incredible. What's that like um, to drive? Because it sounds insane. It's bananas. <laughs> it's bananas. But to drive, it's actually really, really friendly. I mean, the thing to remember with any racing car, any of these sort of what you might call a gentleman's racer, these two million quid hypercars that are racing cars, basically, but they're they're refettled to be yeah. friendly to drive. There's so many adjustment parameters you can put into them to, to make them so to make them better or work yeah. you know, better or more friendly and approachable to drive than a full house racing car, which is, you know, a, a much more aggressive fidgety thing. And it's all done with the setup. 
So no, in terms of to drive, that thing was just wild because it was just it was so sharp and lovely and and actually sharp and yet smooth to drive. But every time you're on the gas, just this <laughs> 140 decibels of screaming 9,000 rpm V12 accompanied you down every straight, and it was just it was just yeah that's that it oh, it's just it's just so exciting to do stuff like yeah that. i can imagine do different manufacturers of let's say that style of car set them up when you drive them because i guess that's all you have as a reference point in a similar sort of way like whether it's like a tiny bit of high speed understeer or yeah or, they, th- or they, do they differ a bit no i think on the whole they did they they do it so they are what they would call a someone they're not basically they want to make sure they get to the end of that event with the car still intact <laughs> yeah so they don't want they don't want um they don't want the mold being hurled into barriers on the first corner um so i suspect they do yeah i suspect there's a nice sort of relatively friendly setting that they um they work with um but yes we often get asked to you've got to show you know what you've driven before that makes you able to come and drive this and um just to make sure that you yeah try and they're trying to make it, mitigate against disaster i think that's always quite a funny yeah. I, do you just sort of point them and go look youtube just do a google <laughs> or by now well, they know enough, who you it are does, i mean people now ask less because your yeah. your driving back catalog is more obvious because it's it is a viewable on youtube or on the on the website or whatever um, but yes, no. In the past, it's been quite, quite. Um, yeah, it's been quite. It's been quite tight and tough at times. They've said you, we need you to have had single seater experience or this sort of thing. Mm. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it swings and roundabouts. But yeah, by and large, people do want to make sure that you're not going to stuff it as soon as you get there. The one I remember best of all was um, which which amazed me were, that we got to do it in the first place because I'd done some stuff with Mark Weber when he was driving for the Porsche. Um, Le Mans prototype yeah. LMP1 car and I said to, I'd said to him just in passing you know do you think they will ever let anyone outside the race team drive one of these cars and he went mate it's never going to happen they're so specialist they need such no one will ever drive one and then about six months later I got a phone call from Audi asking if I wanted to drive the R18 TDI nice. car because it was when they pulled out and basically the team had been given such little notice that this was going to happen and were so pissed off, they went, right, okay, if they're pulling the plug on us, we're going to let the media drive it. <laughs> so we all went down. They did it in December at um, Neuburg, is Audi's test track, which is a tiny little Mickey yeah. Mouse track, so you're never going to get a proper feel for the car. But they And you were driving it in December. So they sent you out on hot, t- on hot warm tyres and said, there's no chance you can keep any heat in them. Just have a good go for a couple of laps and then just trundle about because yeah. you'll fall off if you don't um but they they before that they asked a lot of questions and i think they only let seven global media drive it or maybe even less um but they said to us we need to make sure that a you're under five foot ten right b, you weigh no more than this c we need to know that and it's because you were sitting in i think it was Loic Duval or so I can't remember who the driver was, but you were sitting in his seat. Yeah. And he was a he was a pipsqueak, whatever <laughs> it was. But the Germans sent a guy down, having been told all this, who was six foot two. Oh. And he physically 
couldn't operate the car. So one of the one of those slots went, and I think they they put me in the car for a second second bite, so we could get some photography and stuff done. But those those sorts of experiences don't come along very often. No. But that was an amazing one because the the team was so emotional. And when we got there, the team boss said to us, please spend some time talking to the guys today because this is the last time the car will yeah. ever run. Um, it's, they were doing something the following day for friends and family and VI and yeah, people who had supported the project and internal people. But this, this was the day before in December. Please spend some time with the guys because they were all on their way out and they'd all basically been told their, their next project was probably going to be a Formula E car. And I think they were just oh, yeah. sort of thinking, oh, Christ, what did it come to? Um, so you get, yeah, that sort of, those sorts of events are was, just amazing. What was it like driving a Audi LMP1 car? It was, it's amazingly small inside, which I know sounds natural, but you sit like you're in a bathtub. So you're sort of like this with your knees right up around here and the steering wheel sits between your chest and your knees. Mm. It's like there. It's just so <laughs> close. And your feet are up. And then you're just, yeah, you're basically just pointing ahead in this tiny little pod and there's been lots of instructions. So normally when you do this sort of stuff, they give you the day before you get there or something, or they have a briefing the day before where they give you a picture of the steering wheel and say, learn this. You need to know this, this, (laughs) this. And you need to know not to press that, that and that or twist that. And you go, oh, right, okay. It's like it's like playing boggle or something. You've just got just a jumble in your head of stuff. Um, Then... Um, then you, you but the, the the thing that you're always looking for defining characteristics that can that would distinguish that from anything else. And mm. with that car, it was how because of how they organised the electric power and the internal combustion power, you came out of a corner and it was like you hit warp speed, and you jumped the first two hundred meters down every straight. Yeah. So as you'd come out of a corner in second gear, and this that, that's what Neuburg has. It has second gear corners. So you trundle around the corner, and then you've gone, right, I can bury it now. And you'd buried it, and the thing had just gone, Phew! and you'd accelerated <laughs> so fast, it just felt like you'd leapfrogged the first 200 metres because yeah. all the torque from the engine and the all the big hit of electric is they've worked out the most efficient way is to get you to do the first bit of the acceleration curve. And after that the acceleration could back off. And so for Le Mans and stuff, the, you know, you were, your acceleration curve went like that and then like that. Yeah. So that, did, and that was the defining thing about that car. Did those hybrids, they had a, there was a speed that the hybrid system had to disengage. They, they, they do now in LMP1, did they have that? Yeah. It was like, I can't remember. I can't, or to be fair, we were never going to be up above. I don't think we ever got. I got beyond two hundred kilometers an hour. I'd have been surprised yeah. if, we, if we did any point on Neuburg because it's not a big circuit. But yeah, you're just you're yeah you're just there thinking. Don't be the one who puts this one in the barriers. Had you, had you driven anything similar. sort of similar like LMP2 or anything like that before then? Um, yes, I'd driven a couple of other bits and pieces. Um, I can't remember. I spent a lot of time with uh, doing stuff with, well, not a lot of time, but I'd driven Nissan's um, Zeod and the Delta Wing before that, when it was called oh, the right, Delta yeah. Wing <laughs> Project. Um, we'd done some stuff with that, and I'd done uh, quite a lot of GT3s and, mm. and yeah, single-seaters. I'd driven you know, on a, the, a still a red-letter day that I still talk about endlessly to anyone who will listen. I drove Alain Prost's Formula One car nice. back in 2014, a 1986 
think it was 86 Renault RE40 twin turbo F1 car at the Dijon Prenoir circuit, which was just I bet that was quite absolutely astonishingly <laughs> astonishing. And that it still goes down as well. Pick. That's that's never going to happen again. And thank you very much indeed. Yeah. Um, so yes, you get you a bit. I I have a marvelously diverse portfolio of what I've been lucky enough to mm. drive over the years, and it's it's yeah, that's what is it's all about to me. I wouldn't, you know, I'm not. So weirdly, I've I don't I don't I'd like to sort of have the lots of different diverse experiences rather than just sort of pursuing one, one start one yeah. thing, if you like. Yeah, um, totally. Although rallying is probably a bit my heartland, and I do get a bit excited about that. I went to my first WRC event last weekend. Went to Rally oh, Spain. Did you? Um, yep. Which I it was a sort of baptism of fire, and and I did it with Toyota, which was great. Like you just pop in on a helicopter and watch some rallying, pop out and do something else, have some lunch and whatnot. <laughs> I felt a little bit bad that I didn't. Excellent get to sort of get out in the early morning in the dark with the fog and the lights sort of flopping around and whatnot. But it's, um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm now interested a hundred percent. So cool. It's, I, I think, cause I've been taking my son to watch rallying since he was four or five years old. Mm. He used to go and walk just to go and watch jet rally GB. Yeah. Because I remember the first time I saw a rally car, um, where, you know, when I was like, early twenties and stuff and went off with some mates to watch it in the, in the, um, in Wales and just being absolutely mind blown. And that was full Colin McRae era yeah. of, of, of stuff. And just being, well, I think we'd watched, that's right. We'd watched what, what really set it for me is we'd watched the national cars come through and the national guys are quick, but then they'd been, they'd blown the whistles and they'd said, right, international, we knew the international cars yeah. were coming, the dub, the full house cars coming. And the first one, the line he took was entirely different. I can't remember who it was. It might have been like Armin Schwarz or something in a Hyundai accent or something. But the line he took, the approach he was on, the speed he was <laughs> carrying was just, it was just staggering, absolutely staggering. And I've never lost that. Whenever you watch WRC these days, the speeds they are doing is just bananas, absolutely yeah. bananas. And I've been lucky enough to drive a couple of the cars and it, they just blow your mind because yeah well basically they blow your mind when you're sat next to someone who really knows what they're doing <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. because that is it's just like oh my god you're this is not going to work you're, everything's clenched yeah yeah i've what. had that with you know driving on track and then you get a pro to drive the car and then you're driving something and that's always like oh okay but i imagine being in a rally car is another level above because there's a whole level of commitment that you just doesn't exist on track that does <laughs> on a stage yeah. with trees. Yeah. I think it's because the terrains are so varied. So on a lap, on a track lap, you know, every three miles you'll be going back past the same yeah. bit of scenery and you can work out exactly where the margins are. You know where this bit, you know, you know where the outer limits of the apex yeah. and the corner and stuff is. But with rallying, you're not going past the same bit of scenery each time. And in fact, you don't know what bit of the surface, we know exactly yeah. what the surface is doing beneath you. And it's, it's so you, you've, you're putting your trust in them much more. And then when you throw in trees and rocks and log piles and all the rest of it, you just go, oh, 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 oh it can all go so <laughs> badly wrong. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. So with all these, like, you know, looking at different experiences and whatnot, I've always looked at, say, and, and 
all the most of the magazines do some sort of performance car of the year type thing um and i look at it and go well okay but this is and i know it is what you've got to do but it's this is cars that have come out this year and like if i was asking the people that are doing it if you could buy not necessarily buy, but like pick Mm. any car to drive maybe in a five-year period, it would look completely different as a lineup. Yeah. Now, to sort of take that a bit further, if you were doing a sort of car of, almost like cars of your life in terms Mm. of you've driven, but you've got to put a top five or a top 10, let's just say five, um, but ideally with like slightly different experiences, what would you throw in there for a, to, to just the all-time greats on a sort of car of car of your life yeah. event. Yeah. Um, it's difficult because you're exactly right, and I'll make this this point now, is that the supercars have got so fast now that you fundamentally can't use them. I've just got back from doing um, the cover story for the next issue of the magazine, which involves cars costing less than 30,000 quid, yep. trying to have funny cars costing less than 30,000 quid and had a better time on roads in any of those than I've had driving various Ferraris and Lamborghinis yeah. where you just physically cannot use the performance they're capable of. And because you're not using their performance, you're basically just dawdling around. And yes, there's some, there's something exciting about being able to use some of the revs some of the time and yeah. and enjoying the steering feel or whatever else it is. But you don't feel like you're, you're properly partnering those cars. So with that said... Um, what would I put in to a top five all-time stuff? Can I have racing cars? Yeah, you can chuck racing cars in there. I, th- I feel like we might end up I with five know. racing cars, though. I think... <laughs> no, no I wouldn't, actually. Put a couple in. I, do you know, I'd, I'd only put a WRC car in. Ooh. I'd put a full-house WRC car in because they, the, that, those have been the cars that have most scrambled my brain, um, uh, I think. Then... Oh, this is putting me on the spot. I'd, um, I'd have, I'd have a Ferrari F forty in there. Yeah. Um, I'd have. Whenever anyone else says to you, "What's the best road car you've ever driven?" I still think a Porsche nine nine seven GT two GT three RS. Um, <laughs> is is yeah. I I put in there because that would be my banker. I know I'd have a brilliant brilliant time driving it. I'd probably put a Lotus Elise in there. Um, because I think they're fabulous. Yeah. Um, and I love lightweight stuff. I don't know. That's a, that's a bit of a starter anyway. What would you put in? Well, I, I, I smiled because I've owned and own one of those cars. <laughs> so I had <laughs> an F40 until a year oh, ago. did you? Um, oh, wow. Which was mega. Um, mm. but I just sort of got to the end of my time with it in terms of value and whatever. Didn't use it. Um, yeah. but as an on-road experience on a B-road, mm. that was very, very high up there. Mainly, like, mm. all the things, obviously. You know, I'm sure you've driven one. Like, the sketchiness factor is a huge part of the enjoyment and the fact that the suspension yeah. is a bit rubbish by modern-day standards. Yeah. So it's always moving around and whatnot. Um, and I have a 997 Gen 2 RS that I've had for 10 <laughs> years that's, that's pretty mega. Because <laughs> um, yeah. for me... Cars are exciting when they have more power than grip. Yes. That's what that's fundamentally what makes them exciting. But when they have when the like with modern stuff now, which has it does have more power than grip, but the limits are so high of the grip that yeah. you're just like 
Why this is going to go? If anything happens, this is going to be a bit silly. Um, yeah, the and I, technology and everything I even think now, as time goes on, like my RS, I think that's got more power, more grip than I want, and at least mm. on cup twos mm. it, on a dry day. Yeah, it's like you're not really exploring. It will take all the power most of the time, unless you're committed. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Sort of sending Absolutely. it. <laughs> um, yes. You drove yeah, yeah. A, um, a pretty cool thing recently. I saw you drove James Dean's, James Dean's N3. Yes, I did. Yeah. Drift well, car. Actually, it's a 320 diesel. Oh, okay. It started yeah. live as a 320 diesel. And I think we did put M3 in the YouTube um, bit. But yes, I did. And that was amazing, actually. That was a car that surprised me simply because I didn't expect it to be well, I mean, actually, having said that, I should have expected it because if you watch him, you look at this, the cornering speeds they're doing in drifting, they're going very, very fast. Yes. So what I was doing was applying my knowledge of skidding about on tracks and sliding around to a full house drift car where you had to be so much more committed to the corner mm. in order in order for it to work properly. So... You know, our, my knowledge of getting stuff to slide around corners is you set it up a little, set it up as early as you can, but then you you know unsettle it, boot the throttle, boot the throttle, get it to yeah. an angle, and then you're dealing with it. And actually, once you once you're at that stage, it's that's the easy bit, and it's, it's coming out that's the the difficult bit. But with his car, it needed to be unsettled all the time. Now it had more than enough power to do that. It was nine hundred, nearly nine hundred yeah. horsepower, as we were driving it. Um, but the speeds were so dizzy. Once the tyres got hot, and they're only running at about 8 PSI, there's barely really? any air in wow. them at all. Super low pressure, masses of grip. So you had to be really physical with it. And once it was sliding, then you could be more fluent with it. But to get it to go in the first place, you really had to upset it um, or carry a dazzling amount of speed. Yeah. And that, that shoot actually happened twice because we were meant to, we did it at Dunsfold originally, which I was really happy about masses of runoff. Yeah. But on that day, the car broke down and we actually could then couldn't drive the car for about another two or three months because of uh, his, a lot of his commitment stuff. Yeah. So we then went to Mondello park in Ireland to drive it, which doesn't have <laughs> anything <laughs> no. like as much runoff. Um, and yeah, so I was, a, I was bricking it a bit, but it was, uh, it, it really is an amazing experience because actually uh, I found it once I got used to the speeds you have to commit to things at, I found it quite easy because the angles I'm used to committing things yeah. to, which is basically half a turn to a full turn of lock in a road car. Well, you were barely halfway through the steering lock on a yeah. drift car. You could just carry on. So if you if you gave it too much, you could always put more on. Um, and that was, um, yeah, that was bananas actually. So yeah, what what a thing! I thoroughly enjoyed it. She yeah, thoroughly I, enjoyed it. I'd love to drive something like that. That 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 sounds really intimidating to start with. Like, it it, it the, is quite intimidating, and I think I said it in the film. <laughs> I was I was deeply unsure about it because I thought maybe it'll be easier if it's wet, and then I realised that actually if the surface is inconsistent mm. as it was, because we had a, a little bit of rain and stuff come through that day, and that that engine i'd never driven anything with a 2jz that everyone yeah. i know everyone goes on about <laughs> i don't think i'd ever really driven anything not with not with a 2jz that had had a turbo this big bolted yeah. onto it and everything else and what i couldn't believe with that engine is how 
responsive it is. There's no no anti lag in those on that turbo, but how responsive that engine is, and then how quickly it builds up through the revs. So right. as soon as it loses traction, it basically heads. It's at the red line. Yeah. So on a couple of places, there was an off camber bit where it was still wet and it lit up. And there's a bit on the film where you see me go, "Whoa!" It's because it just bit instantly and just like my god and I, I didn't think it was it wasn't even on the throttle that hard but it was enough to upset it and yeah it gets <laughs> gets very exciting very quickly the power tail off quickly once you're in it when if you lift off no. does it drop slowly or is it like no it yeah no it, it does you've got very very good throttle control on it really good throttle control so you could be quite you could be really accurate with it um but it just it didn't like going I didn't like go being driven straight. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's got a locked rear diff. So as soon as you turn in, you're getting kung, 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 kung. Yeah. it just wants to go straight on. But as soon as it was flying around, then it was, yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot of fun. I was starting really starting to get into it. Then the um, I broke the gearbox, or the gearbox broke, or something let go. Those anyway, happened. Yeah. So um, it was a yeah, it was a bit. It was a great shame, and I had to apologise to James. Yeah. It. Did you watch the latest Jim Carner? The Ken yes, Rock's Audi yeah, one. It, yeah. Um, what do you think of that? Mm. I it wasn't it wasn't my favourite. I have to say, I it and it I just didn't think it. Although the the venues were great, I didn't think it showcased all it could have done. Actually, I have to say, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think with previous locations and cars, I think they've done the one that stands out for me is San Francisco as like jumping over all yeah. the roads or. Mm. I I missed some noise, but I don't. I was I was watching it and I was trying to work out why I wasn't that bothered. There was there was a one mm. reverse entry that I was like, yeah, yeah. "Oh my god, this is yeah. mad!" Mm. Um, yeah, just you can tell all the talk and it's just fully on it. Mm. But then the rest of it, like yeah. I say, it was just kind of like, "Well, he's just going around some corners." In and it, 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 I have to say, it did feel like they'd forced the other Audis in there a bit as well. Yeah. And I don't mind having other product in the back of frame but hang on this is your Audi is meant to be Audi getting excited about its electric future and here they are showing us yeah. all the cool stuff they used to do um so I and I thought that was a little bit forced um and then uh, yeah and it, there just wasn't quite enough variety in it and I didn't want to see a car sliding around an underground car park in Las Vegas Las Vegas yeah. is full of amazing locations you use use that instead yeah. there was some there was some lovely cinematography in it and yeah a couple of those high speed reverse entries were wicked yeah, but um, yeah, it would no, it wasn't my favorite. Do you know? I go back to the one of the really early ones, the one that he shot at Montlaret Circuit in out on the outskirts in France. I think which was was it the first with the Fiesta, and it was but going through around planes and stuff. Um, I can't remember if it did, but it, there was a load of stuff on but on steep banking and things. Yeah, um, yeah, and I remember at the time that being. Oh my god, that's so cool! But again, this, and the San Francisco one was wicked as well. That was yeah. Really I think when the and this is a problem. It's a bit like it's where we're at with all sort of media. Is you've just seen so much stuff. Like for them, they've done so many awesome, really sick, mm. cool things with insane cars. Yeah. That like mm. it must be a nightmare trying to come up with something new. But I think that well, first Jim Carner, when I think it was like them drifting through a building from outside through mm. the building to outside again. And I was like, Oh my God, yeah. I've never seen that before. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, where do you, how do you draw a line? Because this, you know, and how do you progress things any further? It's got to a bit of a natural breaking point now where the, you, you, it's pretty far fetched what a lot of what he's, he's yeah. doing. Um, and I don't know how you take it any further than that. So, no, no, it's an interesting one. Right. Well, well I normally wrap these up with five questions and I feel like. Given the times, so we should okay. start to get to that point. Do you have a most yep. memorable driving trip or journey? <laughs> I've got, got a couple. That one I was talking about in Namibia earlier yeah. um, was was brilliant. But the other one I usually cite where the car was not the star of the show, but the experience was. And this is, a, this is going to be a little bit of a long answer, but the car was an Infinity QX70. No, I don't right, know but this. the story was amazing. So I, at a motor show, was talking to the CEO of Infinity, and the CEO of Infinity at the time, this is back in 2016, 17, I think maybe 18, yeah. um, was one of those sickening people who's not only the CEO of an international car company, but has also hiked solo to the South Pole and <laughs> done all this yeah. amazing thing. As a result of that, he'd got, I think he was, in a, he was a member of the American... Uh, geographic association or Ge- geographic society and he'd been to a presentation there where they'd been talking about discovering how uh, mongolian paleontologists were looking for dinosaur fossils in mongolia right and but needed funding in order to help it because they'd figured out that if they used drones with different cameras using different wave bands of light they could spot likely areas to dig for fossils but okay. they needed investment so Infinity had said, well, I'd love to sponsor this, but in order to sponsor it, I need to make sure we can get something back from it. I need to make sure we can get some exposure or something. So he'd mentioned this to me at a motor show and said, do you think this is the sort of thing you might be interested in? Would you be, you know, how could you give it some coverage? I went, mm. yeah, absolutely. If you can get us out to Mongolia, we will very happily report on this. So we did this amazing story where I spent three or four days in the Gobi Desert with paleontologists d- using drones and then digging for fossils. And we found, you know, because you do in Mongolia, it's astonishing. We found baby velociraptors, wow. and heads of amazing things. And it, it's the absolute story that I don't, I don't think that story would float in any other media title. I don't think yeah. you could use it. And it's a shame in a way. And it's much more of a travel piece than it is a car piece, but it enabled us to tell cultural stories which i think are really interesting and we do and we and we try to do a lot of um whether you know america japan wherever yeah um but we i think those stories are really important because it's not about the car it's about the culture that is associated and they were they were reliant on these cars to get them into the parts of the desert and then i had to drive back to ulaanbaatar with a plaster cast containing two velociraptor and you just think my God, where in my life choices did this come from? But I like it. That is... um, so having the ability to do things like that, that, that story I think is one I'll be telling for a long time to come. That is super cool. And that is, yeah, that's that melding of the two, like great story. There's some cars involved, but like, yeah, <laughs> great mm. story. Um, if you can only drive one car for the rest of your life, sports car, what would it be? Probably a Lotus Elise. I think, I think it probably would be every time I see a, uh, I've got one, and every time I get in that, I just think it's my reset button. Mm. It's just 
it's so pure and so lovely and it's a series one and it's absolutely standard and I never want it to be faster. I never want it to do anything else. I look at it, the beautiful little stack instruments and the tiny little steering wheel and just think, this is perfection. So I think it would probably be that. And I dawdle about B-Roads and just have a lovely time. Yeah, nice, nice. like that. Because I think for a lot of people, they go like, what's the craziest thing I can think of? Mm. And then... Yeah, yeah. Generally, the people that I no, because think... I get to do all the crazy stuff through the exactly. through my job, and it, what I like is having a reset button that brings me back to what really matters. Because what really matters to me is the feel and dexterity, and having actually having to concentrate on the driving and having a clutch and a gearbox and feeling some stuff back yeah. through the chassis and the steering. And I'm afraid that I think most modern supercars and hypercars now are just they're force deliverers. They yeah. just hit hard and they, they but they don't integrate you into the process so much no not at all and it's funny i look back at certain cars like the aventador actually and i haven't driven one in a while but i imagine that's better now than when it came out because it's a bit crap like whereas yeah and those that will feel more sort of I don't know, authentic you know the sort of the gear shift I don't really want to drive around town, but on a on the right road, I think you're going to get more of an experience than a eight thousand horsepower, whatever, just delivered to the road. Mm. But yeah, yeah, quite. Murcielago um, SV. That's a that's a car to have a good. That's a, a car to have a thrash in as that, well. That is a car I I think is, is so cool. Such a cool car. Yeah, um, it is. most undervalued car at the moment. What should be worth more? Ooh. <laughs> most undervalued car at the moment see I've currently got my eye on Audi R8 V8 manual the yeah. original 2007 car which is still under 40k and I I keep thinking those the values of those look tempting yeah in a way that they shouldn't be almost even the fact that in the last two years people have really started talking about them being undervalued and everything and i'm still looking at them stop talking about yeah them. yeah, yeah i'm yeah. trying to get money across the line somehow <laughs> i um, saw one the other day um drove mm. past and i was like that is really cool like the r8 is it a is. cool shape manual gearbox yeah cool sounding mm. v8 not yeah. crazy fast and there's a, there i'm um, somewhere in there there will be there there must be a brilliant story about why that was as good as it was when it first came out and what Audi was thinking internally yeah. that made them think, we want to smash the 911 and all of that stuff because it is a really, really good car. Yeah. Would you have a 911 or an R8? Oh, generally speaking, a 911. Yeah. But back in 2007, <laughs> an R8. <laughs> what is the most interesting car to you at the moment? What are you looking at, um, Googling? <laughs> that R8 too much. Um, interesting car to me at the moment. I'd, I tend to like stuff. So I'm th- because I can't think of an answer off the head, I'm going to answer by talking myself probably into something. Yep. Um, but I like cars that surprise and generally do things that you that aren't, you know, so you can't work out exactly where they've come from or what they're, or yep. what they're doing. Um, so surprising cars is what I always look for somewhere in the, in a, 
in a template. But at the moment, I honestly can't think of anything. I tell you what, no, I can, I can think of something. I'm intrigued by the reasoning behind the Lamborghini Huracan Storato, which they're going to build next year as a sort of gravel off-road supercar. Oh, that one, um, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Um, but I know I've, I've sort of already sort of know what it might be, might well be like. And I like what I think it will be like. Yeah. And I know Porsche are going to do the same probably with a 911. I don't think they're going to call it a Safari Dakar, or a I think cross country or Dakar. The name is getting thrown around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I like the idea of that a lot, but it's a bit like, I, I like, I love my cycling yeah. and road bikes. And it's a bit, they, those cars to me a bit like the gravel bike trend in bikes. Yeah. In that everyone goes, oh my god, that's brilliant! I want one of those. And actually, you think, oh, it's just a road bike with factor tires. And yeah. So I'm a bit concerned that those are going to be uh, how fit for purpose they're going to be. That um, is, I've but, got, I've got that sort of thought about whether it's the 911 Dakar or whatever. Because hmm. I, I see people sliding around sort of safariid cars, and you hmm. see all the weight transfer, and you go, that looks like fun. But hmm. will these deliver a different experience to? Yeah, normal yeah. car or do they just look jacked up and that's it um, yeah yeah no and the, the other thing that just is a fundamental ongoing interest for me is anyone who does a hot hatch it's <laughs> it's still just yeah. just do a good hot hatch don't worry about electric i'm not fussed about that because you know a good hot hatch is such an efficient and entertaining yeah. and well packaged bit of kit you know, it'll do if it does 30 or 35 to the gallon, it doesn't really matter. But they're just they're more visceral engaging than most modern supercars, I think. Yeah. And one of my favorites, the Fiesta, it's mm. gone. It's going to die. There's no that's, replacement. That's an absolute travesty. I, d- I mean, I haven't read up enough on Ford's reasoning. I can predict what it's going to be. And it sounds a bit lame to me because I still still think you look at the amount they're all, they're still selling of those. Yeah. And how popular they are and how integrated into our car culture they are. Um, I don't quite see how um, they they replace it or what they replace it with that's going to be accessible to 90% of people who don't care what they drive, but they want it to be affordable and easy and everything else that the Fiesta is. Plus it has a bit of verve to it. Yeah, and if you're a sort of young petrol head, generally most people at some point in time end up with a Fiesta ST. Like it, and it yeah. is a, it's so much fun at that mm. price point. And it it's is. just so much fun, full stop. Yeah. And it, yeah, a yeah. Puma is not the same. No, no, it's not. It's not. It's, good, it's, a, it's a good crossover, but that's damning it with faint praise. Yeah, different thing. Right, final question. Five-car mm. garage, unlimited value. <laughs> Oh, that's just impossible, isn't it? Um, what would I put in it? I'd put an F1 in it. I would put a McLaren F1 in it. Yeah. I would put in, because this is a story that's going in the next issue of the magazine, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but I'd put into it a either a Mercedes G-Wagon or a Defender okay. towing a Bruder caravan. And Bruder is an Australian caravan. You'll have to look it up. Look B-R-U-D-E-R. They make these amazing expedition caravans and i did a big story with one taking it up to scott driving up to scotland back in the summer um i would absolutely have one of those because i we've got a camper van at home a vw cali um which we use all the time as our stuff yeah family wagon and i love it but i think 
I might have been trumped in my affections now by a brooder caravan. Um, so I would have that as my rig. That would be my rig. That and an F1, I would, I'd have possibly a Jaguar XKSS. That's the thing. Yeah, the EXP6, that's the big picture there. That's what just identical to that nearly is oh, what wow, I took look up at to that. Scotland. Yeah, so they've got... They've got up to 600 mil of ground clearance. They float, <laughs> so you can take them through wall, oh, wow. through, they float. So take them across river crossings and stuff. It's all air suspension, so you on the move, you can tilt it and move it and change it yeah. around. Ah, oh, just incredible things. Absolutely. What's the incredible. damage on one of those? About 120,000 pounds for the okay. caravan. Quite a lot. Yeah, about yeah. 115 start. I think the one I t- one I had with all the kit on it was 127. Yeah. But it's got like cabin pressurization systems. It's got all <laughs> sorts of trick bits and kit, bits of kit. Wild, wild thing. I might well have a yeah, an XKSS or a C type. Yeah, nice. Um, because I I think that I think that's my favourite classic. Um oh, I don't it's um I'd stick a 205 GTI in there, I think. Mm. I've got a 306 Rally outside, um, but I think I'd have a 205 GTI. I need a hot hatch in there anyway, and I and think it would be that. You, you go And you go older, probably lighter, less grip. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Older, lighter, and then probably put a 2-litre MI16 lump in it. Um, <laughs> I've driven the Tolman. Tolman Engineering do a car that we had last year as part of our speed week, which I just loved. I thought it was just, it was so, yeah, so engaging, if you like. And yeah. if I could, I'd I'd have a WRC car and then I'd go and rent Sweet Lamb and Walters Arena and Aberyn and whatever other stages I could in Wales well, they, and do that. They are, and I hadn't really thought about this much, but they are the only, maybe, um, modern, fully up-to-date, fully wham-bam race car that you can drive on the road. Yeah, yeah. So we, we've done it, actually. I've, I've done it as part of stories before. In fact, this is, I mean, sorry to bang on, but I'll just to give you another little story. Back in 2014, I did a story on turning a Hyundai i20 into a rally car. So I okay. took it literally off a boat from Korea, turned it into a rally car over the course of a year, which ended up in this basic white car, doing Wales Rally GB. Nice. And I said to the WRC team, because it was just when the WRC team was starting out, I said to them, if if I win my class, can I drive the WRC car? <laughs> and they went, yeah, 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 because there's no chance of it happening. Anyway, long story short, we won our class well on Wales Rally GB. And good as gold, the following year, Wales Rally GB, the car that had finished third... I think it was Danny Sordo's car, came off the podium. They said, there it is, with three mechanics and a trailer. Off you go. Do whatever you want. So we, so I had it for two days. I had the wow. WRC car, literally just finished Wales Rally GB. And so I went and drove it on my favourite roads through, like, around Ballar and Festiniog in North Wales. Loaded it into the trailer. We did some stuff around Shrewsbury. We took it down to London. I drove it all <laughs> the way around London, Piccadilly Circus <laughs> and everything overnight. Um, we d- got stopped by the police a couple of times that evening. Can you make it quieter? What are you playing at? Yeah. Please piss off. Um, uh, so drove it around there and then took it down to Lydon Hill Rallycross Circuit um, 
the for, uh, on another day to go and drive it down there following day to drive it down there so yeah that was um yeah bananas so yeah and what's it like driving on the road in something like that is it is it too much or no it's not because it's so because they're so compliant especially if they're in uh, gravel trim yeah they're so compliant and they they drive on the road with cans on so they you you and your co-driver you just plug into the onboard peltor and then you just yeah just fine so you're just there going (laughs) and it's all very short geared so you, yeah, you, you. I mean, it's it's noisy and stuff. I think they gave me a limit of three hundred miles we could right. do in it in total. So we had to transport it between yeah. places and things. I think it was that. Um, but yeah, to, so that was just ah, oh, yeah, that was and was that it was brilliant in? I guess in in um, gravel spec on the road was it quite loose? Um, yeah, it feels like it is. So the, what, the, what I always say to people when, say, when they say, what's a, what's a full house rally car like to drive? It's astonishing because it's so nimble. So any input you put into the car, it responds immediately to, mm. it feels like it just, I mean, it, it does it, it, you can change direction on top of pinhead when in them, but any input that the, that the terrain puts back into the car, the car is never deflected off course. It doesn't seem to have any impact. So when I, we drove, we had one down at Speed Week in 2019 at Portimao on the rally course at yeah. Portimao. We also drove it on the track because it was hilarious. But any input you go, so I hit big rocks and lumps and things and the steering wheel would, would you, you'd know you'd hit it, but it would never knock the car off course. So that ability of you feeling so nimble whatever you did to the car and yet anything that was an external influence that hit the car yeah never deflected it at all was astonishing and that you know i know they spend twenty thousand quid a corner or more on dampers alone and they have billet made made engines and it's but in terms of the perfection of the engineering that puts something together i you know for for uh, someone who's you know we none of us will ever be Formula One drivers, but you could appreciate the engineering in a rally car yeah. without having to be at a bonkers level. Yeah, and you see when you see them driving, and these guys are like absolute heroes. But nowadays, it's so smooth. It's it's like they're on a tarmac. Like yeah, okay, there might be a bit of correction here and there, but they are so just like, I'm going in that direction and the car's just dealing with everything. It is incredibly impressive. It, it is. It really is. So, yeah. Question for you then. How did you get into this? How do you get to where you are now? Um, I don't have tons of time, but I'll give you, I'll give you a, a short sort of setup. Um, yeah. Studied engineering at university, got distracted by skiing, Went and did a lot of skiing, um, became a ski instructor, did a lot of skiing with Shmi 150, actually. We lived together oh, in really? that period of time. Huh. Um, Travelled to New Zealand, instructed together and stuff like that. Uh, but all that time I started taking photos and I'd kind of been into photography, but not in like a... And then I think my engineering brain-esque has always been, how do I break that down? How do I do that better? How do I pick apart what someone's doing? Which actually seems to translate into being creative quite well in a, in a sort of weird way. Uh, so taking lots of photos, started getting into photography um, and then, yeah, I started making videos and then this along the time realized I'd met a lot of people and had a reasonable amount of contacts that I thought at the beginning anyway, to start 
recording long form conversations. And for me, as I think the cars almost become less interesting over time because I'm exposed to more, I get to do more stuff. I love driving, but just looking at stats doesn't do so much for me anymore. Um, yeah. It's about people and stories. And actually that was a part of the podcast. I didn't realize that I was going to enjoy at all, but now yeah. is the pretty much the only reason I do it is I get to meet people like yourself that I wouldn't otherwise get to meet. We get to have a good chat and do these long form podcasts. It's not, here's your five questions and five minutes and you can prep them and send them back to me. And Mm -hmm. it's now for me, it's about meeting the people and the experiences that I get to do it with. And this sort of enables that. I think you're right because that, what always strikes me about it is that you get, social media saturates you with content. And if you like a certain type of content, you just get fed, fed more and more of it. But for me, it is the driving that I enjoy more than anything else. So we bought, I've got a say at me at home, like v, the VW up little thing, because yeah, my yeah, kids yeah. are learning to drive. And we bought that. And I really enjoy driving that. Again, it's that palate cleanser thing of a car that was designed, fundamentally interesting to me, a cars that are that fit for purpose for what yeah. they were designed to do. And that is true. And I think that a lot of the case nowadays is, is the brands are not doing that. They're doing cars that are, that they know will sell because they're fashionable or marketing led. So you get so many bloody crossovers and everything. Yeah. And yes, I can be impartial about them, but really I don't <laughs> like them very much. But that say at me, it's got 60 horsepower, but it does the job it was intended to do yeah. really well. And I think there's, that's fundamentally that's, what cars should be. I think that's when my brain just hurts nowadays. Is it, is it fit for purpose? And I used to be of the attitude, yeah. definitely with my own cars as well, was like, I kind of wanted each car to do everything and to be the, mm. them all be able to suddenly take them on track and do whatever and just drive hardcore stuff all the time. Yeah. But mm. I now I've realized that that's not the case. And you need, if you're going to have multiple cars, ideally they should do different things and they should yeah. be angled for that. But you do see brands moving away from where I I personally go, yeah, but you do this so well and that's why people buy your cars. Like whether it's a, a mini that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger mm. until eventually people just buy a different car because mm. it was designed. The reason people bought minis in the first place was they were small-ish, you know, or yeah. crossovers or whether it's luxury cars. I find a bit of a disconnect with Bentleys at the moment because I feel like they're not as comfy in, in luxury interior everything amazing but i don't think that they ride as well as i my brain thinks they should and then mm. or these suvs dbx 707 which i hear is pretty good um for what it is setting nerbo ring lap times and stuff like couldn't care less what you're talking yeah. about mm. yeah no i think as soon as they try and broaden out a, a, strate- a strategy so they're trying to make sure their car is the ultimate on road and on track yeah then they're on a hiding to nothing because you're not one thing nor the other there. And you've compromised all the way along the line to make a car that does both those things when, you know, okay, there will be 10%, 15% of owners who will want to do both of those things, but you've, not yeah, really. you've fundamentally undermined yourself in, in a way by doing it. I think it's very rare to find the Ferrari 296. I think is a pretty exceptional bloody car. Actually. I think that's really, really good. Um, and the GT4 RS, those are the two cars that finished top in speed week. And I think mm. what you were saying earlier about, you said, you know, if you could choose, would any of this year's cars come from a crop? If you took the yeah. last decade, say, 
No, I think the 296 and the GT4 RS are all-time exceptional. I think they would be in any list of the best cars for a, for a, in the, of the last decade. That GT4 RS especially, it might just be me, but yes, it was good on track, but it was just how it made you feel on the road, mm. what it did on the road and the noise it made, which was spectacular, I thought. Yeah, I'm really looking yeah. forward to hopefully having a go in one at some point. Mm. If you took the 296 and... I've not driven one. Lots of people, they reference something, whether it was like an F8 or a Pista or whatever, and go, yeah, but this is the best car currently for sale. And then you're like, oh, okay. But like, if we wound back a bit, people always go back to, let's say, a Speciali. Now, I know cars have, they have actually moved on dynamically and a lot, a lot since then. But your 296, and I know it's not the hardcore version, versus your Speciali, where do you sit? I'd, I'd always just have the standard 296, I think. I know everyone gets excited about the um, the racier ones. The four, the 458 Speciali was pretty exceptional, actually. That was pretty exceptional. But that, talking about cars that are undervalued, standard 458s. Yes. I think you, they're, what, 110, something like that? And it's a, that's still a chunky chunk of money. But you're thinking, oh, electric's coming, and that engine has got one of the... That car's got one of the greatest engines ever in one of the greatest chassis ever as a standard pure, pure sports sports supercar a bogo 458 is a bloody bloody good thing yeah and i think they're they're coming back up again and i don't know at some point whether they will start to overtake the the more modern ones um they, they might well do i'd i'd have a 458 over a 488 or an f8 and I Any think day of the week. Yeah, before I, I, can't, I don't want to talk forever and ever and ever. But on the that bit of going, we as sort of, I don't even want to use the word petrol head anymore because I think that's not the right word anymore because it, it sort of implies that I'm anti EV and I I quite like tech and mm-hmm. EVs and stuff. So whatever. But when the sort of hardcore special versions of all these cars get sort of put on a, a plinth and they are mm-hmm. awesome, but that sort of fit for purpose thing of is this, let's say you take your GT3 RS, maybe wind back to when you could have a manual um, versus the GT3, which was a manual. The difference in the car, they are like a little bit better and a bit more raw and whatever, but they're not like a hundred percent better. It's, it's small percentages. And therefore the value in the slightly below, which delivers most of the experience it makes much more yeah. sense to get one of them. It, I, I think it, I think it does. I mean, you can even take that right back. I I was fortunate enough to run enough to run a Bogo nine eleven Carrera for a few months uh, end of last year, early this year nine nine two and yeah nine nine two and I think if you want a daily nine eleven, if you want a dirt nine eleven, you're going to drive every day and do everything with then a basic Carrera is absolutely all you need. And I could go beyond that and say it's actually the best Carrera, yeah. best 911 there is. Uh, yeah, sure. If you're going to, if you're going to, it's going to be a weekend car, it's a GT3 all day long. But if it's a standard car that you're going to use as your daily car, you don't need an S, you don't need four wheel drive, you don't need a GTS, you don't need a turbo. Just have the, st- the standard 911. Put some nice bits on it. Yeah. And, and that's and that's done. It was I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And but I know this is the one thing that I think separates uh, motoring journalists from the actual people and and shows how different we are sometimes to the people who actually buy the cars is that 
they fundamentally, you know, we fundamentally will always go have a slightly purist mindset yeah. and go, no, this is all you need. And honestly, and it is honestly, I would have a standard one over an S or a GTS, even if I had all three parked in front of me and told you can have any of those. What? But I think the buyer, when he goes to the dealership and is told this, you need this, or you need, or you want this, or you've got to have some one over one upmanship over your mates or whatever it is that the, the buying criteria is dictated by. I think that that quickly goes out the window, and they get um, a bit it is more it is a really interesting options. one, and I I'm I'm in this situation right now. I say um, like yeah, it's a good situation to be in, but I have a nine nine one dot two GTS that I use a lot of the time, PDK car because I want I wanted adaptive cruise control because I sit on motorways a lot, and annoyingly you can't get a manual with adaptive cruise control. Anyway, I ordered a nine nine two. GTS, but in February, and it's looking like it's not going to turn up. And I drove the GTS, and I really liked the 992, but now it's looking like it won't arrive. So I'm almost like resetting and going, well, what would I have of 992.2, which I think is not too far away. Um, and I'm starting to, having now driven the GTS, for my usage, I'm like, well, actually the 10 mil lower suspension that's a bit stiffer, I don't want that. The power with all these cars now is enough. Like, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, so maybe a Carrera, either manual or PDK, with just a few rear-wheel steering, I think for me is, is one of the things you've got to have, especially around town and whatnot, um, and maybe a nice stereo or something. You save like 30 grand, and you've got, I think I'll have a better car for the purpose. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And in fact, the two things I'd say you don't need on a 911, this is through my process of having driven quite a lot of them, the standard stereo is really good, and the standard headlights, provided you can be bothered to yeah. flip the main beam on and off yourself, are amazing. You don't need any, anything else. I just This was some of my takeaways from yeah. driving, driving a lot of them. Is that yeah? There's yeah. There's there's some good standard stuff on a nine eleven without having to go wild with the options. Have you driven one with the acoustic glass in the windows? It's a really niche option. It's like nine hundred pounds. Yeah, yeah. The, the double glazing on the sides. Yeah. I, I if I have, I couldn't remember. Can't remember. Um, it's it's one of those ones. I, I've been. I was searching for a car that had it spec'd. Um, to mm. buy and I couldn't find any 911 that had it and I know one person yeah. that's got it on their turbo and they're like it's awesome it's I think it's like three decibels quieter in the car um, okay and you get a lot of road noise in those cars so that that is yes you do that's quite but chunky. normally with 911s it comes from the rear yeah, so I don't know how much car. difference it makes because it's usually <laughs> sort of rear wheel arch liners that let the noise let the noise in but the 992 yeah. is better for that I think I've made quite a big step with it yeah, yeah, yeah. When do you yeah. drive 992.2? I don't know. Well, I mean, you can work out the model schedule, so it's probably sometime in next year, I think, because I think the this one came out 2019 or eight, end of 18. Yeah. So it's usually on a four-year model cycle. To I think it's Geneva, then... wherever Geneva is this year, apparently. I think it's, yeah. I think it's somewhere else. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I, th- I think it was, it was about time to, to wrap this up. Thank you very much okay. for, for coming on. It's been a, Not at all, Sam. My pleasure. Chat. Hold up. 
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.